This episode of Between the Covers is brought to you in part by Vancouver Manuscript Intensive, a literary mentoring program that pairs emerging and established authors with mentors in their genre. Directed by award-winning writers Ellie Kralji Gardner and Rachel Rose in Vancouver, BC, the program is open to writers around the world who seek sustained mentorship for their works in progress. Writers can join the six-month program that includes interaction with other mentors and students and participation in a public reading, or they can pursue solo guidance for more directed and short-term support all year long. This year, a fellowship for a writer of exceptional promise who has faced significant barriers to fulfilling that promise is offered for the second time. The application deadline for the six-month program beginning January 2022, is November 9th. Please visit VancouverManuscriptIntensive.com for more information about pairing with a mentor to hone your project. Today's episode is also brought to you by BBC National Short Story Award winner Joe Lloyd's Something Wonderful, a debut collection of nine stories that delight in language and shine with wit, wisdom, and deep humanity. In Lloyd's pages, a vainglorious mine owner dreams of harnessing all of nature to the machinery of commerce. Two women hunt rare butterflies in a pre-First World War landscape, and a rural Welsh community is fascinated and angered by glimpses of its invisible, wealthy neighbors, and more says Hilary Mantel. Joe Lloyd has drawn out all the intensity and latent power of short fiction, a major talent, adds Karen Russell. Her sentences could rouse the dead, and do, in this excellent book. Something Wonderful is out on August 24th from Tin House and available for pre-order now. Before we had today's conversation, Kava Akbar knew what he wanted to contribute to the bonus audio archive. But then, when we talked, through the process of talking about his work, we both knew by the end that there was something else calling to be read. Whereas I'd normally mention what that is now, I'm going to wait and mention it during the outro music at the end of the program. So, in the meantime, see if you can guess what it is that Kava ultimately contributes to what has become an immense supplementary collection of readings. In poetry alone, the bonus audio includes Alice Oswald responding to my impossible questions by reading from the Book of Job, and then responding to the question Anne Carson posed to her in the interview by reading a new ballad she had written. There's Jory Graham reading rain poems by Robert Creeley and Edward Thomas and discussing the different types of rain. There's Richard Powers reading a heartbreakingly beautiful poem by W.S. Merwin. There's Arthur Z. and Phil Metris reading their translations from Chinese and Russian, respectively. There's Douglas Kearney and Laylee Longsoldier reading their as-of-yet uncollected new work and much more. As longtime listeners know, 
about 3% of listeners are listener supporters of the show. And I aim to get this up to 5% by the end of the year. Perhaps the bonus audio is particularly intriguing. Or perhaps becoming a Tin House early reader, receiving books months before the general public. Or the rare collectibles donated by past guests, from Ricky Ducournay to Forrest Gander to Nikki Finney. You can find out about all of this and more at patreon.com slash between the covers. But regardless of these various benefits and gifts, if the show itself feels like a resource, either for your writing and art making life, or for your life and sanity more generally, consider helping the show forward into the future. Again, you can do so at patreon.com slash between the covers. Enjoy today's conversation with Kava Akbar. These stories are about the id unleashed. They're about the wildness contained in all of us. I think stories kind of have some kind of magical effect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories. And if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that. You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story. Had no idea how to write a novel, didn't know if it would ever come to fruition. Was working at a vet and kind of lint-rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself. They're almost like really shy animals. They will come out of the woods, but you have to stay very still, and you have to pretend like you're not interested in them. Artists tend to, like, put their fingers in the wounds in the silences. I believe in the role of literature as a, as a catalyst for dialogue and, and, and new forms of, of thinking. All the stuff I'm interested in is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain and it's put on spin. Good morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest, poet Kava Akbar, earned his MFA at Butler University and his PhD in creative writing from Florida State. He's a faculty member at Purdue University in the low residency MFA programs at Randolph College and Warren Wilson College. He's also the founder of the remarkable poetry interview website, Dive Dapper, where he's been in conversation with everyone from Mary Rufel to Solma Sharif to Sharon Olds. Akbar also wrote a weekly column for the Paris Review along with Sarah Kay and Claire Schwartz called Poetry Rx. And with poet Ocean Vong, he wrote poems for the 2018 film The Kindergarten Teacher, starring Maggie Gyllenhaal about a precocious child poet. This last year, Kava Akbar was named poetry editor at The Nation magazine, a position previously held by Langston Hughes, Anne Sexton, and William Butler Yeats, and is the author of the chapbook Portrait of the Alcoholic, of which poet Patricia Smith said, Kaaba Akbar has written one of the best books of poetry I've ever read. Thus, the arrival of Kaaba Akbar's debut poetry collection, Calling a Wolf a Wolf, was a significant literary event that year, heralded by everyone from Frank Bedart to Fanny Howe, and prompting poet and poetry critic Stephanie Burt to declare, Akbar has what every poet needs, the power to make, from emotions that others have felt, memorable language that nobody has assembled before. Akbar's poems have appeared in The New Yorker, The New York Times, The Paris Review, Best American Poetry, and many other places. 
He's the recipient of the Ruth, Lily, and Dorothy Sargent Rosenberg Poetry Fellowship, and he's editor of the upcoming anthology, The Penguin Book of Spiritual Verse, A Hundred Poets on the Divine. Kaba Akbar is here today with us on Between the Covers to talk about his second full-length poetry collection, just out now from Grey Wolf, entitled Pilgrim Bell. Mary Carr says of Pilgrim Bell, Akbar is an unlikely prophet, hilarious and irreverent and self-deprecating. Yet even non-believers will travel the circles of faith and hellscape, love and rebuke through his captivating voice. He's incapable of setting down a line that's less than luminous. Pilgrim Bell is destined to become a classic, another blazing torch added to the eternal flames. Library Journal, in its starred review, says, The poems in Akbar's highly anticipated second collection span and invert boundaries, addressing addiction, faith, language, history, self, family, and power. Instead of purporting to provide answers, the poems exist in between, somewhere between wonder and shame, like the messy experience of being. Embedded in each poem is the question of how to live and what responsibility comes with knowledge, how to live as an addict after addiction, how to believe while reserving, quote, the right to refuse enchantment how to exist in a nation that questions your existence. Lyrical, profound, and honest, Pilgrim Bell is a collection to which the reader will return. Finally, M. Norbessi Phillips says, Working at and along the outer edges of language, Pilgrim Bell calls us to attention and to attend to that which poetry and prayer share, while simultaneously demanding that we tend to the political the social, the erotic, all that is quotidian and human. Persimmons and empire, saffron and refugee camps, exile, oleander, and the rolling stones, all the stuff of poetry and of prayer. In Pilgrim Bell, the poet Kava Akbar, God's incarnate spit in the mud, takes us down to the ground, to the prosaic, the dismissed and overlooked, the better to talk to the great silence, bearer of many names, including that of God. Welcome to Between the Covers, Kaba Akbar. Thank you so much, David. That was, that was such a robust intro. <laughs> um, thank you. Well, in many different contexts, you've talked about Ellen Bryant Voigt's poetry collection, Headwaters. Yeah. And most particularly her poem, Groundhog and how it was crucial for your development, not only as a poet, but as a person. Yeah. When you were on Commonplace with Rachel Zucker many years ago now, you talked about how syntax is identity, and how when you were becoming sober, you were piecing together a new identity. And you said that you discovered the power of the unpunctuated line in Groundhog, how a poem without punctuation can still have a punctuation inherent to it. And we see many examples of this sort of poem in your debut collection. But when we open Pilgrim Bell, we first encounter a poem called Pilgrim Bell that is hyper-punctuated. Every line is, is end-stopped. Many of the lines are short sentences, even one-word sentence. 
um, each ending in a period. But more often than that, um, we don't even get full sentences. We encounter um, periods in the middle of sentences, um, fragments that we have to push through or we have to push through the punctuation to complete the, the phrase or the sentence. So given that we get this title poem at the beginning and then we get five more instances of poems called Pilgrim Bell that ring through the collection that are similarly punctuated. And given that um, you've talked about syntax's identity and unpunctuated poems seemed to suggest a previous iteration of your identity, I'm, I'm curious about um, what this says about you about you as a person and both you and your trajectory as a poet. Um, so tell us a little bit about Pilgrim Bell, the series of poems in this, in this light, in the light of identity with regards to sort of the fingerprint of, of the line in the sentence. Yeah, that's such a beautiful and perceptive question. And I want to thank you for it and for just spending good time with the book too. Um, it's obvious that you've, spent real substantive time with both books and also the paratexts around both books. If you're listening to the commonplace podcast and things like that. And so um, I'm grateful for that time that we've gotten to spend together um, uh, separately. And now I'm grateful <laughs> for the time that we get to spend together together yes. um, with regards to the question that you're asking. Yeah. Um, the Pilgrim Bell poems are sort of excessively punctuated which isn't to say that the poems in Calling a Wolf a Wolf weren't punctuated, but just that I tried like Ellen Bryant Voigt and Lucille Clifton and Middle and Late Merwin to create a punctuation inherent to the syntax itself, you know, not a visibly demarcated punctuation, but a punctuation that lived inside the word choices and the enjambment. Um, whereas in these six poems, the the titular poems from this new book, Pilgrim Bell, um, the punctuation appears excessively, like as you say, right? It it breaks up sentences in the middle of sentences. It breaks up clauses, even non clauses. Um, it uh, you know the enjambment. It, it 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 every enjambment has a period, right? Um, to me it feels like the period is a signifier of semantic certainty. Um, you put a period at the end of a thought to declare it complete, right? And I think the project of this book as, the project of this book in very many ways parallels the project of my own psycho-spiritual growth, which is um, over the course of writing this book, which has been to learn how to sit in certainty. I'm, I'm sorry, learn how to sit in uncertainty without trying to resolve it, um, without groping desperately to resolve it. The questions that seem to govern my living most acutely are all fundamentally unanswerable. And in my lurching towards um, the illusions of resolution for them, 
uh, I've only created suffering for myself and for others. And so this to say, I think that these poems in their rejection of the semantic demarcation of certainty um, in the way that the language just sort of ignores um, the imposition of uh, visually demarcated certainty, it just rolls right past it. Um, I think that the poems were in many ways mirroring my own journey or not even mirroring because I feel like they went out a little bit ahead of me in this way. I think that they were um, portending, portend, you know, mm -hmm. auguring um, a bit of my own journey. You know, um, I think they were teaching me something. Yeah. Could we could we hear the first pilgrim bell just to sure. so people can get a sense of it? And I'm also just curious how you're gonna how you're gonna read it also. Sure. Pilgrim Bell. Dark on both sides makes a window into a mirror. A man holds his palms out to gather dew through the night, uses it to wash before on prayer, only a God can turn himself into a God. The earth buckles, almond trees bow to their own roots. Fear comes only at our invitation, but it comes, it came. Been listening to Kaba Akbar read the title, the first version of the title poem, Pilgrim Bell. Um, later in the book, we get a, a Islamic hadith uh, where the Prophet Muhammad is asked, how is the divine inspiration revealed to you? And he says, Sometimes it is revealed like the ringing of a bell. But the opening to the book is more elusive. Prior to the first poem, we get a page that says, any text that is not a holy text is an apostasy. And the next page has a line, then it is a holy text, which seems to suggest paradoxically that perhaps by being an apostasy, it becomes a holy text or alternately, that this book isn't an apostasy, so it must be a holy text. Um, and I'm thinking of M. Norbesi Philip, who suggests that the collection calls us to attend to that which poetry and prayer share. And I wondered if you could speak to or into your relationship as a poet to divine inspiration, uh, to holy texts or texts that are holy in their unholiness, or more generally to the role of God or faith as, as subject or as mm. prime mover in your work? Cause I know you were going to name this collection at one point, God. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I forgot that I said that publicly that I was going to name it God. Um, yeah. Everyone hated that title. Uh, <laughs> even God. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I just, yeah. I don't know if you write a book about flowers and call it flowers, 
nobody bats an eyelash, but um, I think about poetry in my own life operating as a spiritual technology. I think that M. Norvesa Philip and some of the other people whose names you've invoked um, likely feel similarly about their work. Certainly M. Norvesa Philip's work has functioned as a spiritual technology for me, even just reading it. Um, you know, the the classical formulation is that prayer is what you sort of send up or send out and that meditation is what you receive, right? And poetry operates both of those channels for me, right? Um, or sits in squarely in both of those channels. But I think that what is more is that when I pray or when I write a poem, when I pray or when I write a poem, I'm not exactly appealing to an interventionist divine, right? That's not my sense of what either of these technologies are doing. Um, what I am doing is orienting myself towards action um, with both. Um, you know, you you pray for the poor and then you go out and feed them, right? Mm -hmm. You don't pray for the poor and be like, all right, my job here is done, you know, and then, you know, um, and in the same way, writing a poem about justice doesn't replace the actions that one has to take within one's own community um, towards creating the justice that one aspires to see within their civic station, right? Um, I think that the poems and the prayers orient one towards action, but I think a lot of, there's a lot of danger in believing that um, poems or prayer replace the action. You know, I think that's where a lot of um, poetry people and, you know, people who fancy themselves quite pious get themselves into trouble, right? Yeah. Is, um, is when they're practicing either of those in lieu of the, you know, the less sexy um, and humbling work that nobody, you know, stands on a signing line to tell you how brilliant you are for doing. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, well, I collected some other poets' thoughts on the connections between prayer and poetry. Oh, I just amazing. Wanna, I just amazing. want to read them to see if it sparks yeah, further yeah, discussion. Yeah, yeah. And this yeah. is true. I think people notice the, the de devotional connection even non-believers and, and atheist poets, such as uh, poet Nick Laird, also mm. known as Zadie Smith's husband, <laughs> <laughs> who nevertheless says that he has a religious sensibility and he likens the ritualized language and heightened states in poetry with that of religion. But I wanted to read what some other poets um, in addition have said. So Mary uh, Shebist says, I have always been attracted to apostrophe and here she's speaking of the dramatic figure speech, not the punctuation. I've, I've always been attracted to apostrophe, perhaps because of its resemblance to prayer. A voice reaches out to something beyond itself that cannot answer it. I find that moving in part because it enacts what is true of all address and communication on some level. It cannot fully be heard, understood, or answered. Joy Graham writes... Poems are, after all, dialogues between the song of man and the silences of God, aren't they? Uh, Padre Gotuma says, This is how strange prayer and poetry are. 
by naming what is not there, we can be wrapped in some kind of sacramental absence that does seem to have some sort of presence at the heart of it, one that doesn't give final answer, that is not interested in certitudes, but is interested in some kind of connection point. Hmm. And, and finally, back to M. M. Norbesi Philip, who says in Pilgrim Bell, the poet Kava Akbar, as I read earlier, God's incarnate spit in the mud takes us down to the ground, to the prosaic, the dismissed and overlooked, the better to talk to the great silence, bearer of many names, including that of God. And I, I'm thinking of God here I like this formulation. God is the great silence or poetry as a dialogue between a human song and a mute God or, or silence as a presence as Otuma said. And I guess I wanted to hear a little bit more about language and prayer and poetry from you, maybe having heard these, um, because it's not just that you're, um, that they share a devotional orientation, but you also explicitly engage with prayer as subject also in your poems. Um, so as gesture, and you've written um, the essay, How I Found Poetry in Childhood Prayer. Um, does this spring, does this um, spark any further thoughts for you about the unsayable and, and even the, um, the power of the body and, and, and the gesture of, of, um, of, of prayer as gesture? <laughs> Um, I like all of those. Um, and they're all sort of alluding to something that was present in the book's invocation or opening that you referenced before the any text that is not a holy text is an apostasy. Well, then it's a holy text. Um, the apophatic understanding of the divine, right? Uh, def defining the divine by what it isn't, right? Simone Pei says, if God is not evil then where evil is present that can't be god right you know and and yeah. and this way of sort of like arriving at um something like a definition of the divine right um i'm obviously grossly oversimplifying and sort of mangling but um but this sort of apophatic theology is really really interesting to me especially as um i think the poems have gotten a little bit quieter you know the first book i was in the the sort of urgent rush of early recovery and just very much out at sea with my disease and just sort of clinging to the poems and so the language in those feels very sort of super saturated and loud and bombastic and um and in this collection i just think that i've grown a little bit more and my life has gotten quite a bit noisier and so i think that the poems um have gotten quite a bit less noisy um and to the point that i actually really became interested in art lyric art but also visual art and um sculpture that worked with void that worked with um the negative space sort of just defining the the shape of the thing right mm -hmm. um and thinking about language as the negative space poured around the shape of the silence which was the real poem right the the poem you know and poets like gene valentine uh are of course the sort of masters of this to, to my mind right yes. um where 
um, you know, you just, you can see, you can see the vast landscape that she's painting um, in between the words, right? Or like um, when you listen to like Debussy's uh, 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 Sunken Cathedral, right? Like you can just sort of like see the giant like stained glass. You know what I mean? Like like how how it's the how it's the silence that gives shape to the thing, and it seems like you know in Otuma's definition and in um, in Norbessa Phillips formulation and, and in, in, in everything that you said, um, everyone is sort of orbiting this idea of, um, sort of sounding the depths of the, or a divine, um, using the, the sort of absence, right. Um, using the, using the gulf between you and it as, um, the medium by which you might sound it. You know, I, I, I think sometimes about, you know, I, I have lost a number of beloveds as, you know, any mortal human being of any age has. Um, and, uh, and I think sometimes about communicating with them, like two prisoners on opposite sides of a wall, right and uh and like you can't see each other you can't speak directly to each other but um you know you can tap on the wall and then the wall you know and by tapping on the wall the other person can hear you and that becomes the medium you know the the thing separating you two becomes the medium by which you're communicating right um i think that because i am using a technology that's so endlessly fraught by its um by its political and colonial and genocidal histories. Um, and, uh, it, it, it was never designed to accommodate the sort of things that I want to be able to use it to speak to. Um, and so I think that the closest I can get is, um, sort of warping it around these silences, warping it across these chasms. Does that make sense? It does. I mean, it makes me think of one um, thing that I think religion and poetry share that comes up a lot in the podcast too is is um, the employment of paradox or contradiction. Um, because if we think of these quotes and what you're saying, like how do we um, engage with the great silence but using language or, yeah. or Otuma's thing about the um, sacramental absence having some sort of uncanny presence – yeah. Um, and I'm also thinking how you've said before that you believe at the heart of every great poem is bewilderment and that an orientation towards wonder is essential for a poet. And it makes me think of Mary Rufel, who I, on, on one of the conversations I had with her, she said, I'd rather wonder than know. Um, but I also feel like paradox sort of puts or contradiction sort of puts a a stop sign, you can go no further with your knowing, comprehending mind. There's something on the other side of this, but it's not something that your mind is going to be able to reduce to meaning. Uh, and I, I wondered how that, does that ring true to you? Um, yeah, yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think that, again, I mean, that's the whole practice, right, is learning to sit in bewilderment without groping desperately to resolve it. I had this experience um of, I was in, uh, I was in Europe 
this summer. And uh, when I was in Italy, I got to spend a couple of days in Rome and visiting Vatican City. I was able to see the Sistine Chapel, which I'd never seen before. And um, and I don't know if you've ever been, um, but the you know, the you're nodding. Uh, I have I have been, but for so long ago. Yeah, sure, 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 yeah, sure. But, but so, so the room, the room is sort of divided. Um, you know, the the room with the you know creation of Adam is that what the Michelangelo, you know, the the Sistine Chapel ceiling, right? Yeah. Um, the that fresco series. Um, uh, I don't even know if they're frescoes. I don't. I'm, I'm my art vocabulary is really really um, unconscionably limited, but uh, but they're on the ceiling, right? And then in that same room, because, act, you know, they actually use this room for services. Um, and so there's like a, there's like a sort of like a wooden gate, you know, in the back half of the room. And like on the other side of that gate, there are no pews. And then you walk through the gate and then there are pews and you look up and that's, and, you know, the, the, the Sistine Chapel was obviously incredible, you know, um, and looking at all of the sort of masterful handiwork and all that. But what really stuck out to me was there was this nun standing on the other side of the gate, um, you know, like she wouldn't step foot into the room where you could like actually look up and see, um, you know, she was, but she was like standing on her tippy toes looking in through this gate, right? She was like standing up over the little ledge so that she could look in and she was just looking through this little sort of like square, right? As if, I mean, I'm getting goosebumps talking about it. You can see it. <laughs> I can. Computer, so can. But, um, but she was just looking in through this little hole in the gate and she never walked over to the other side, right? She she only ever, and I just sat there probably for 15 minutes. You know, that was, that to me was the most fascinating and, um, and uh, I don't know, luminous part of the Sistine Chapel for me, right? Mm -hmm. Was just seeing this woman who, you know, and of course one invents a narrative in situations like this. So to me, it seemed like she just couldn't take it all in, right? Like she couldn't step in that and be like in the full throes of um, the divine as one, you know, you it, it is a real super saturation, right? You're surrounded, every wall and the ceiling is, you know, surrounded by these depictions. And so she could only, she could only bear just like this little sliver at a time. Right. And she couldn't step fully into it. And I thought, I found that so incredibly moving and I surreptitiously, and this was obnoxious of me, but I surreptitiously sort of took a picture of the scene and, you know, I sent it to a friend, a real, real, real beloved, you know, uh, uh, someone who I love dearly and owe a great deal to and, um, and who is, you know, Catholic. And so, you know, I knew, I, I thought that she would sort of like, you know, and and she liked it um but then she uh she posted it on her um social media right and uh and quickly someone was like oh yeah she can't step into that room because she's wearing a habit and somehow be, if you're wearing a habit you can't go into yeah. if you're wearing like a head whatever you can't like go into an active interesting i don't know i don't i don't really understand but you know i'm not I'm not any flavor of Catholic, but um, somehow it had something to do with the fact that she was wearing a habit. And so she couldn't step into the room. And so it was like, like my wonder was like, this woman is like, so in the throes of awe that she can't bear to look at this, <laughs> you know, like she, she's just like, so 
overwhelmed by the divine you know and it was like it was i mean like i spent the entire day in vatican city right you know doing all the vatican city stuff and um and this was the highlight for me was this woman you know and and my wonder was so great at this right my my bewilderment was so great at this and it just seemed like such a profound lesson and then like no one marched in and like yeah. stomped over it with the most like mundane bullshit like yeah you know like byzantine misogyny you know what i mean like just this like just this nothing of a reason you know that like completely trampled over my wonder you know what i'm saying like this is the way that knowing crushes wonder right and 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 when i say you know bewilderment is at the heart of every poem i think that um you know i i, I know the thing in which you said that and um and i think that people sometimes see that and they're like oh he thinks that everyone should just be writing about like rainbows and you know babies little toes and shit like that right um but i think that i think that you know i think that when i say bewilderment it's a value neutral thing right it's it you know in other words rainbows and photosynthesis and babies little toes are profound occasions for bewilderment but so is man's capacity for cruelty to man um yes. despite our overwhelming sameness as a species and so is um the fact that the top one percent of the world's you know hegemonic power structure controls over 50 percent of the wealth of the world you know and and the i mean that's profoundly strange it's profoundly bewildering right um and and so i think that yeah i i, I want to be i think that words like wonder and bewilderment are used in such a way as to sort of like um sandpaper them to this kind of prozacian sheen you know what i mean uh that um strips them of like the actual critical value that like if you read a poem like um Gwendolyn Brooks's Beverly Hills Chicago it's a poem where she's like driving through this little neighborhood on the south side of Chicago it's now it's largely a cop neighborhood Beverly Chicago um uh but it, it's it's just a it's just a affluent neighborhood in the middle of a lot of very unaffluent neighborhoods and she's driving through it and she's like um I just looked it up and there's this stanza that says um, nobody is saying that these people do not ultimately cease to be. And sometimes their passings are even more painful than ours. It's just that they live till their hair is white. It's just that so often they live till their hair is white. They make excellent corpses among the expensive flowers, right? Nobody is furious. Nobody hates these people. At least nobody driving by in this car. It is only natural, however, that it should occur to us how much more fortunate they are than we are, right? It's like, that's pure, that's like pure, like distilled, like straight from the tap bewilderment, right? Like that, that the the best thing, you know, like the, what you could describe, that's bewilderment, right? Mm -hmm. And it is a bewilderment that is um, critical of uh, certain hegemonic power structures and socio, but, but it's, but it's bewilderment, right? And I think that that is when I talk about, you know, when I talk about bewilderment or defamiliarization is maybe a word that we're more comfortable using um, in a kind of value neutral way. Um, defamiliarization being at the heart of, you know, just about every interesting poem, I think is a way to, is a way to articulate that in a, um, in a, 
Yeah. Does that make sense? It does. I'm, I'm, I'm still struck with this image of, of even with the false narrative of this woman behind the wall, looking through the hole because yeah. of how overwhelming I'm thinking of not only Bill Wilderman, but awe perhaps. Yeah. And, yeah. and I don't know if it's too much of a stretch, but when I think of like the Pilgrim bell poems being six poems, I think of the call to prayer and then the five instances of prayer in a day so that the five certain things that are going to happen in a day are those, regardless of what the rest of the day is, are going to be like the period. So the period is certainty, these, these five moments of prayer that ring after the original bell sort of form the container. Like she's trying to form a container behind the wall to be able to hold whatever can't be contained. Um, Which is why I was thinking maybe we could hear one more iteration of Pilgrim Bell Sure. And, then, and then also I was hoping maybe the poem vines. Um, could, could we hear a pilgrim bell on page 37 and then, and then vines? Oh, this was uh yeah, this was one of the very first ones of this sort of poem um, that I wrote pilgrim bell. How long can you speak without inhaling? How long Can you inhale without bursting apart? History is wagging its ass at us, twirling in its silver cape. I want to kiss your gloves. I want you to kiss my friends. Can you see the wet? Azalea quivering on its vine, its ripening dread. If it never rained again, I would still wear my coat, still wrap my socks in plastic. Doing one thing is a way of not doing everything else. Today, I answer only to my war name, Wise Salt. I can make a stone float off into the sky. I can make a whole family disappear. I know so many people have been awful to you. I've given each one a number. When you're ready, I will ask you to draw me their hands. And then this is the poem called Vines, which is one of the first poems in the book, the second poem in the book. Vines. When I saw God, I trembled like a man. I used the wrong pronouns. God bricked up my mouth hole. His fists were white as gold. There were roaches in my beard. Now I live like a widow every day, a heave of knitting patterns and sex toys. My family speaks of me with such pride. Nunesh tu they say. His bread is in oil. 
I thank them for that and for their chromosomes, most of which have been lovely. I am lovely too. My body is hard and choked with juice like a plastic throat stuffed with real grapes. My turn-ons include roomy and fake leather. My turn-offs have all been ushered into the basement. I'll drink to them and to any victory roaches in my beard. I live now like a window. Fat wet vines creep through onto my floors in the pipes and through the walls gentle as blue flames. They curl my living. There is ice in my attic. Sugar on my tile. I am present and useless like a nose torn from a face and set in a bowl. Been listening to Kaba Akbar read from his latest poetry collection from Grey Wolf Pilgrim Bell. Well, I want to I want to stay with um, the question of repetition a little bit because um, if we think about the repetition of prayer and maybe the repetition of the poem Pilgrim Bell as sort of providing a scaffolding for a day or for a collection or providing form. I also think of repetition having the potential for having the opposite effect. And I, I wonder if you're also engaging with this opposite effect of repetition, because I think of the way uh, the position of the body is important in prayer. So for instance, prostration in Islam or kneeling or certain hand gestures in, in Christianity or rhythmic swaying in, in Orthodox Judaism. And, and when I watch you perform your poems, when you do readings, you, you do have a certain sort of rhythmic swaying. Even when you're talking with me here, you, you've been uh, pivoting in your chair in a, in a sort of rhythmic way. Uh, yeah. And it made me think of, of Kazim Ali, who, who finds a connection at least as much, if not more, between poetry and dance as with, between poetry and music. And he says, the body is the consonant and the dance is the vowel. The words of the poem are consonants. The breath that moves through it is the vowel. The vowel is the spirit, and spirit is breath. Poetry and dance are arts of breath. And when I when I think of this and the the swaying of your body as you read, and the presence of an epigraph in one of the sections of the book by a Sufi mystic poet, and the ways repetition is used in mysticism whether it's the zikr and Sufism or more generally chanting or incantation or repeated body movements. It's like doing the opposite of creating scaffolding or creating order. It's about um, breaking out from or spilling over from a container, it seems to me, maybe a a gesture towards the ecstatic and the uncontained. Um, And I, I just wondered if you had any thoughts about both the repetition of the body, uh, whether in a poetry reading or in prayer, and the repetition of of either like syntactical sequences or actual words. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the the one face of that is that I'm just super hyperactive and have been my whole <laughs> life. And, um, you know, I've always had a really strong manual fixation and an oral fixation. So I was a really nice, I smoke, I used to smoke a pack and a half a day. And since I quit that, you know, I'm just constantly fidgeting and moving and, you know, I, I never really stop. Um, in terms of the way that that lays into the poetry. Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, the reason that you go to see John Ashbery read or the reason that you go to see 
you know, Gwendolyn Brooks read is because you know that there will be some connection to whatever the catalytic energy was that created the poem in the first place within that reader that wouldn't be present if you or I were just reading one of their poems aloud off a piece of paper, you know, because anyone, any literate person can read a poem off a sheet of paper, right? You don't need to pay, you know, John Ashbery to come do that. You know what I mean? Like you don't to, to literally just read the poem, right? But what you are paying for, what you were paying for um, is the presence of the mind that once sparked whatever catalytic agent birthed that poem, right? Um, and there's, the hope is that there is something in the reading that will, um, that will animate that beyond the mere recitation of, you know, a font on a page, you know what I'm saying? And I think that when I am truly, truly feeling unselfconscious and, um, and when I'm actually sort of connecting with the poems that I've written, um, there is something of that uh, initial catalytic spark present that animates um, not just the reading of the poem, but the entire sort of like vessel of my reading of the poem. You know what I'm saying? Which mm -hmm. I know kind of sounds hoity-toity, but I mean, like, you know, I've, I've talked about this elsewhere, but, um, you know, in Arabic, the word ru is uh, both spirit and breath, right? They're used synonymously. In Latin, it's the same thing with spiritus, right? Yeah. Um, uh, the spirit left the body, the breath left the body, right? Um, uh, this isn't a new thought, the idea that um, what we push out of our mouths in some way can consecrate, consecrate can, um, can sanctify, or that there is something holy or something greater than just, you know, a mixture of CO2 and nitrogen that we're expelling, right? Mm -hmm. uh, uh, this isn't a new, this isn't, you know, there are theological principles. I mean, you mentioned, um, you know, Jewish prayer shuckling or um, the the movements of the body in, uh, in Muslim prayer, um, or, you know, there are a billion trillion theological manifestations of this idea, just, just as there are um, iterative practices, right? You, you were talking about repetition, you know, like there are Sufis who say Allahu Akbar 5,000 times before they get out of bed in the morning, right? Um, the idea being that there's something that when you repeat something that many times that will thin the partition. Um, well, I mean, you know, you know, any seven-year-old can tell you that repeating the same word over and over again, you know, begins to strip it of its um, denotative meaning, right? Yes. And allows it to exist as a more and more like a sonic unit, you know, they might not use that language, but, you know, um, you know, it allows it to just exist as a sonic expression. So imagine saying Allahu Akbar for the 3,197th time, right? Um, clearly you're in the realm of like pure sonic, experience and we know from you know weeping during ave maria or um you know getting hype for a run listening to future or whatever you know whatever that thing is for us right. um we know 
we know that sonic experience carries emotional narrative data. So, you know, I, I don't think that I don't think that it's a stretch for any of us to believe that it also carries the sort of psycho-spiritual data that religion has um, told us that it carries for, again, millennia, right? In the beginning was the word, right? Um, yeah, I, 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 I find myself like trying to narrate these thoughts um, in this way or like trying to sort of like explain these things in a rational way because I'm so aware that there will be people listening to this who are like, you know what, I'm an atheist or I'm an agnostic or whatever, you know, and this isn't for me. And, you know, I'm as confused as anybody about this stuff, but I'm not talking about like, you know, magic potions and, you know, Harry Potter wands and shit. You know what I mean? I'm talking about <laughs> actual, but you know what I mean? Like no, I'm talking about sure. like, I'm talking about like measurable quantifiable things that happen, you yeah. know, neurologically, right? Like we respond to repetition in a certain way as a species, right? Yep. And I want to, I, I connected, I connected and I don't think you've, you explicitly connect these things, but I'd love to hear about it anyways. I was thinking of Sufism when you talk about how for you, poetry moves orbitally rather than mm -hmm. linearly. So for thinking about the movement of the poem rather than the movement of the body, what does it mean for a poem to move orbitally? I think that this tends to be the way that art moves in general, um, at, at least, you know, in the past hundred years um since modernism uh i i think that um i think that the day of the days of like just rendering with complete accuracy with a painting a person with no sort of like stylized gestures um i don't know that people have a lot of interest in that since a photograph can do better than what any human being could do right mm -hmm. um and so i think that um you know if if the if the aim is pure representation right is pure 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 um this is exactly what it was uh you know pho photography can do that better than poetry right um uh film can do that better than poetry right um i think what poetry can is really good at doing is saying this is what it was like right um this is what it was versus this is what it was like. Um, and this is what it was like, uh, tends to move around the about a little bit more. Right. Um, it, it's the difference between like looking at, um, uh, you know, munches the scream versus, uh, or maybe not that, uh, it's the difference between looking at, um, Goya, uh, you know, and looking at JMW Turner, right? One says, this is, this is what it is. And one says, this is what it is like. Right. Um, and, and I think that poetry, lyric poetry tends to be more associative, right? It tends to move more orbitally. And so if I am saying, um, I am sad because, uh, I broke up, right. Um, I could write a poem that says, you know, I am sad because I broke up. I loved her so much and now she's gone. It's so dreary that I'm broken up and it's so dreary her being gone. Bear witness to my gloom, right? That's a very, that's a very narrative and representational way to pass through it. That's a very linear way to pass through it. Or I can say like, you know, today I woke up 
and things were going fine. I brushed my teeth and I was looking at my phone and then uh, I went to put on a clean shirt and I saw one of her old hats in the back of the closet and I just started weeping uncontrollably for three hours, right? Mm -hmm. That's much more orbital, right? It's now the hat that is, you know, we're not saying like, here is what happened, bear witness to my gloom, right? It's now this like hat right that is acting as the foil for this you see what i'm saying mm -hmm. and i think that that sort of like you know forgive my like eighth grade chemistry understanding of the bohr model of the atom but like you know <laughs> if the language is the you know the valences of electrons on the outside and then the protons and the neutrons in the inside are the sort of like aboutness of the poem you know this is what the poem is i'm doing air quotes around the word about right um, I think that it is often the case in contemporary lyric poetry that um, the the language is sort of like the electrons moving orbitally around that nucleus without ever passing directly through it. Yeah. Right? And it is from the behavior of the language that you can ascertain, you know, the density, the mass, the et cetera, of the nucleus. I love that. I also love that it's equally applicable to the solar system. <laughs> yeah, yeah, as exactly. the atom. So we get the micro and the macro. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah maybe yeah. we've just figured out the the unified field theory for uh, for language or something. I hope so. Um, <laughs> could could we hear another poem? Is it too soon? Sure. To hear? Yeah. yeah. Um, how about I wouldn't even know what to do with a third chance. I wouldn't even know what to do with a third chance. What's inside my body is more or less the same as what's inside yours. Here, the river girl clutching her toy whistle. Here, the black snake covered in scabs. Follow my neckline. The beginning will start beginning again. I swear on my head and eyes, there are moments in every day when if you asked me to leave, I would head and eyes. Heaven is all preposition, above, among, around, within. And if you must, you can live any place that's a place. A failure of courage is still a victory for safety. Bravery pitches its refugee tent at the base of my brain and slowly starves chipping into darkness like a clay bird bouncing down a well. All night I eat garlic cream, water my dead orchids. In what world does any of it seem credible? God's word is a melody, and melody requires repetition. God's word is a melody I sang once, then forgot. Listening to Kaaba Akbar read from Pilgrim Bell. I wanted to take this um, question around prayer and more into the realm of language because some of your exploration of prayer is also not just about potentially communication with silence and with God, but also um, the different ways you're engaging with different languages. In your first collection, you have a poem, Do You Speak Persian, that has the line, is there a vocabulary for this one to make dailiness amplify and not diminish wonder? And the line for so long, every step I've taken has been from one tongue to another. And we know from this collection that only 
two people in your life could pronounce your name correctly, your parents, because you didn't grow up in an Iranian-American community. But not only that, your first language was Farsi, even though you spoke it only for the first few years of your life. So English became your primary language at the expense of Farsi's initial survival. Um, And finally, the language of prayer, Arabic. You have a relationship to it, which I think a lot of American Jews, like myself, can relate to with regards to Hebrew, a language you learn to pronounce and sing without necessarily knowing what you're saying. So I have, I have several questions about lang- all, all of these languages with regards to you as a writer. Uh, and one of them being, while I imagine there must be or might be pain being dislocated between languages like this, that perhaps none of them are home, I guess I also wondered if you feel like it is an asset uh, as an art maker to find oneself at the margins of many languages and by extension at the margins of many cultures Hmm. or nations. That's a, that's a interesting question. And I think that it's true that the vast majority of art makers throughout history have in one way or another perceived themselves to be on the outside looking in, right. Um, Somehow right um whether through literal you know social marginalization or through a psychic remove or you know any number of reasons but there's something that vantage point affords one in the way of a defamiliarist perspective right where you can look on the behaviors of a certain population or a certain community um with a more objective lens and say like, Oh, that's really strange that we do that. Isn't it? You know, like, that's really strange that um, it's so strange that we uh, live after being able to reproduce and we're alone among all animalia being able to do that. Right. We live, you know, often twice our life, you know, twice the length of our, right. Um, uh, There's so much that's really, really strange about us. Right. Um, And being a little bit, you know, I'm sure to Jeff Bezos, it seems altogether fitting and proper that Jeff Bezos should have $200 billion, right? Right. But to those of us who don't have $200 billion, it seems awfully weird, right? It seems awfully strange, right? Um, That's an extreme example, but it's, it's, it's the principle that I'm describing, right? Where um, if you are in some way on the outside looking at um looking at what society has deemed the inside right um you're able to identify what is strange what is aberrant what is idiosyncratic about it a little bit more deftly right um and so sure uh, that's the case with um with my you know i i have never felt like i was particularly iranian like you know among iranians i can't really speak the language with ease. Um, I've never lived there in my adult life. Um, and so, uh, you know, it feels appropriative to, to take up space in those spaces. Um, but then I've certainly never felt particularly American, right? Um, you know, uh, 
And so, yeah, I don't know. I mean, that liminality is interesting as an artist. Um, I have other communities to which I belong that I derive a lot of value and identity and meaning from, you know, um, poets, uh, people in recovery, right? I have lots of fellows uh, who people my life in both of those communities that are really, really significant to me. Um, but yeah, uh, you know, I have lots of Iranian friends, right? But again, like, I'm always a little bit self-conscious about like how how I'm taking up space in those environments. And then certainly again, like in, in places in, in American space, I don't even know. I mean, I guess everything here is an American space and, um, and I, I certainly never feel fully settled there. Right. Well, um, I'm wondering also about your non-semantic relationship to Arabic. Obviously it's a, it's intimately connected to prayer. Mm -hmm. Um, is it, do you feel a connection to it? Uh, with your poetry and why the reason I think about it is I think about when you were talking about knocking on the wall to yeah. communicate and I'm thinking of Robert Frost and the sense of sound when he talks about hearing two people having a conversation on the other side of the wall and and you can't hear any of the words but you get all of the meaning and it's mm -hmm. all happening through the music um, yeah. So there is like, I mean, you have, I mean, I don't know what your semantic relationship to Arabic is. I'm sure you have, I mean, I'm imagining, you know, Arabic words and their meaning, but, um, some of them, but, um, is, is there a connection? Do you see a connection between learning the words in your mouth of this language that sort of bypasses the, the, the knowingness of the language? you know, you touched on it already, you know, the, the fundamental thing for me was the same thing as, you know, uh, uh, you know, I learned Arabic enough to pray when I was very, very young. Um, not unlike, you know, a, a Jewish kid learning it for his bar mitzvah, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. um, uh, I learned it when I was even younger than that, but, um, but we never, nobody in my family had a denotative understanding of it or a semantic understanding of it, right? Um, but uh, we could all make the sounds and pray together. We always prayed every night as a family, right? One, we, we compressed all five prayers into one prayer at the end of the day, which was like a sort of like, it's not, real, it's not really a thing, but uh, we sort of let it be a thing. Um, and, uh, and we... Uh, yeah, I mean, like just gathering with my family to speak this secret language that was like reserved for God, you know, like you only spoke to God in this language and everything else used one of these other two, you know, I mean, why wouldn't, I mean, of course that's going to feel uh, special and sacred and holy and strange. And, and yeah, I mean, it was this language that thin the partition between me and the divine, right? It thinned that wall that we're talking about, right? Um, it made the voice on the other side louder. Um, and when I was really present for it, you know, cause like anything, right? It could be really rote, you know, and it could be really, you know, sort of absent, you know, and it could be like, I'd run out during the commercial uh, and like do it as quickly as possible so I could get back to my episode, right? Um, and, you know, like anything, if you're, if you're doing it rotely, you know, it won't feel like much. Right. 
Um, but when I was really present and uh, if I was really present and if I spoke it earnestly and mellifluously, then you could feel, you could feel that something was happening, whether that's something again, and you know, whether that something is like, oh, wow, I'm having this communal experience with my family or whether it's like, you know, there's a literal like bearded man in heaven who's like putting a tally mark in my, you know, in his <laughs> or maybe game. both. Yeah, 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 yeah. Or neither. I mean, yeah. Yeah. Um uh yeah, I I either way, you know, you feel something happening, right? And both of those things are divines, right? Yeah. The communal feeling that one feel the communal sense that one feels with their family is a divine, right? And then the the bearded guy and sandals in heaven is a divine. You know what I mean? Like um both of the, you know, when I say God, I mean both of those things, right? Yeah. It's one of the sort of clumsy catch-all monosyllables that we have in this language. Well, I, I wanted to ask you about autobiography with relationship to your work. I mean, they, your poems seem to draw a lot from lived experience autobiography, um, or at least I feel seduced to thinking so. <laughs> um, and I, um, I mean, I was thinking about like one of the times, again, when I was talking with Mary Rufel, she was talking about some of her feelings about something. And she said, I, I feel this is true. And I feel that is true. And then in the middle, she stops herself and she says, which I thought was amazing. She's like, but I just need to say that when I say I, I'm not talking about me, but she, <laughs> does, but she doesn't say who she's talking about. Yeah. Um, yeah. But um, I'm thinking about, okay, like, so when you were writing poems for the movie with Ocean Vong, uh, the kindergarten teacher, obviously that's a constraint. You're writing persona poems trying to imagine yourself into the life of a precocious five-year-old poet, which sounds like so much fun to try to do. Um, yeah. And also, and also, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off, but, um, but also just like the, the constraint of working with only the vocabulary that a five-year-old would right. know. You know what I mean? No, because totally. it's, like, it's not, you know, this five-year-old isn't going to be like, oh, my denotative understanding of the Bohr model of the atom or whatever I've been on about. Right. Yes. Like the, you know, uh, and so to to only to try to craft what sounds like a good, interesting, you know, literary poem um, using only the vernacular native to a five-year-old was, yeah. was a really interesting constraint. I love it. Uh, yeah. But I, it made me wonder about how much or little do you feel persona playing a role in your relationship to the eye on the page of your of your poems more generally speaking? Yeah. Yeah, that's an interesting question. You know, my <laughs> I don't think that the delta between me and the eye of my poems is as wide as I'm supposed to say it is. <laughs> <laughs> is there right? a supposed to? Is, is I mean, it a, I don't know. <laughs> is it okay if there isn't if there isn't any? Yeah, distance? I mean, I think that I <laughs> every every smart poet, you know, you're quoting Mary Rufel, and you know, I think she hung the moon, and you know, every every smart poet is like, oh yeah, no, totally different, you know. Uh, <laughs> I don't even know that guy, you know, and <laughs> I don't know. I think I'm just not that imaginative, or maybe I'm just like too sort of self-obsessed or self-absorbed, you know? Um, yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I, I don't think, I don't know that I've ever written a persona poem. Um, 
or I don't know that I've ever published a maybe I'm sure that you know this will come out and someone will be like ah oh, here's one that you, you know but yeah. I, I can't remember a persona poem that I've written oh that's not true there's a there's a uh oh but it's not in the first person uh there's a poem that got cut from this book that was about a happy worm that can't stop laughing oh. uh, and uh I yeah I really love I really love it actually uh it's I think it might be published somewhere um but uh but it's not even but it's not in the first person so I guess it's not a persona poem but it was just my happy worm poem about yeah. a worm who couldn't we need more worm happy worm poems i think yeah that's what i said that, but you know yeah the the wiser people than me who um who talked to me about such things said that it didn't fit in the book but i you know so no that. no god for the title and no happy yeah worms. no god for the title no happy worm poem right wow uh, who are these <laughs> editors yeah. Well, also like imagine, you know, I, I, from the, from the perspective of the, like, of the people who have to like sell a book in order to, you know, in order to whatever. Totally. I was just joking. And, no, I know. But I mean, like I, they, they put in my head the idea of like people Googling Kava Akbar God, right. Which just made me, you know, I feel like every time that happens, like, you know, I'm going to get struck by like an Olympian thunderbolt or something, you know what I mean? And yeah. so, uh, yeah. and so probably best to avoid that. Well, let, let's hear um, my father's accent as, as sort of a lead into some more questions. Yeah. My father's accent. A boy prettier than me who loved me because my vocabulary and because my orange pills once asked me to translate my father's English. This poem wants me to translate it too. Idiot poem, idiot hands for writing it. An accent isn't sound. Only those to whom it seems alien would flatten an accent to sound. My poem grew up here, sitting in this American chair, staring out at this lifeless American snow. Black grass dying up out of this snow, through a rabbit's long tracks like a ghost sitting upright saying, oh, but even that's a lie. No tracks, just black grass, blue snow. I can't write this without trying to make it beautiful. Submission, resistance, surrender. On first inspecting Adam, the devil entered his lips, watch, the devil enters Adam's lips, crawls through his throat, through his guts to finally emerge out his anus. He's all hollow, the devil giggles. He knows his job will be easy. A human, just one long desperation to be filled. My father's white undershirt peeking out through his collar. My father's hand slicing skin gristle from a chicken carcass I hold still against the cutting board. Sometimes he bites his bottom lip to suppress what must be rage. It must be rage because it makes no sound. My vast terror at what I can't hear, at my ignorance, is untranslatable. My father speaks in perfect English. And listening to Kaaba Akbar read from Pilgrim Pilgrim Bell. 
when when you say I can't write this without trying to make it beautiful, it makes me think a little bit of your um, discussing the final poem, the palace, where you said some of the the middle iterations of that poem were much smoother, and that Ilya Kaminsky helped you pull it back and make it more hesitant with more of a stammering quality. Yeah, and I I guess I wondered wanted to hear a little bit about both the impulse to make something beautiful and maybe symmetrical, maybe smooth. Um, and then what does the process look like to pull something back from that and to uh, allow it to stammer or to, and to recognize that it needs to stammer? Yeah. Yeah. That's such a good question. And that's so at the heart of a lot of the work of this book, which is why when I had, a finalish version of the palace. I kind of realized that the book was ready. Um, the book sort of really came together once the palace came together because it showed me this, the way that the book wanted to sound. There's this Brian Eno quote that I think about all the time and I talk about it a lot with my students who are probably sick of me talking about it, but he wrote it in his book, A Year with Swollen Appendices, and he talks about the crack in a blues singer's voice, um, you know, if you're listening to like a, you know, Sarah Vaughn or whatever record and the the voice cracks on the vinyl, um, he calls that the sound of an emotional event too momentous for the medium assigned to record it. The sound of an emotional event too momentous for the medium assigned to record it. And I just, I think that that's so, that was when I, when I read that the first time, it was like the clouds parted and like, Gabriel had come through and like named this thing that I had been after, you know, and um, I think that a lot of my work had been a lot of my like early, early work had been trying to name experience or trying to like, you know, create a shrine to experience or uh, psycho spiritual phenomena um that was like equal in grandeur and scope and magnitude and weight to the to the phenomena right Mm. which is which is damned right it's doomed right you're never going to do that right um it's like the magritte treachery of images thing you know like it's you're never gonna you're never gonna make a poem that equals god right you're never gonna make a poem that equals justice or land or grief or loneliness or desire right um uh and so there has to be, for me, to my mind, there has to be some acknowledgement of the gulf between what is said and what is meant, right? There has to be some um, fracture that indicates that the poem is gesturing towards something that it can't actually reach, right? Um, And the stuttering, staggering effect, I mean, the palace is a poem that came together over the process of years and years. And, um, and you know, it's, it's had a billion trillion forms, right? It was a Pecha Kucha at one point, you know, one of those like, you know, slides. And mm-hmm. I mean, it was, it's, it's had a million different lives. Um, but uh, yeah, there was, there was like one fateful plane ride that Ilya Kaminsky went on where I had sent a draft to him right before he took off and then he landed and sent me like what he'd worked on over the plane and it wow. it just like yeah and it was just like so 
herky jerky and I was like oh like this is you know he saw he saw the thing that I couldn't see right mm-hmm. uh, and the poem is dedicated to him in the in the book um because of like he just he saw with clarity the thing that I had been like clumsily groping towards but couldn't actually like name or bring into the fore right and then I worked on it for another you know amount of time and uh but the paradox seems to be you say you you were clumsy before then but in a weird way I'm not suggesting he's making the poem more clumsy no but in a way it's like the answer was to make the language fail more so that the poem works better yeah I mean you know I I say it in the poem right like I want to be Keats you know what I mean like I want to I want to be able to write Ode to a Nightingale. You know, I want to, you know, Borges um, is one of uh, the Argentinian writer, Jorge Luis Borges is one of my favorite writers. And in writing about Ode to a Nightingale, he said, um, he said he'd never heard a nightingale, you know, they didn't have nightingales in Argentina, right? So he said he'd never heard a nightingale, but Keats heard, Keats had heard it for everyone forever. Uh, And I just, I want to be able to do that. You know, I want (laughs) to, you know, I want to be able to be, uh, and so like, you know, Keats, Keats could write an ode to a nightingale that sounded that, that was as magnet, you know what I mean? Dickinson could write about a bee in a way that felt like you were looking at it. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. um, there are these, these sort of like, there are these figures throughout history who have just like clearly evolved a little bit further along down the line than the rest of us. But for us mortals, I don't mean to cast you into the, you know, I don't, but you think for, I have one of those poems in me? Well, I don't, you know, I don't know. I don't <laughs> you know. never know. But for, for mortals like me, right. Um, I have to, I have to show, I have to, you know, indicate that there's something that I'm not able to, that I'm not able to touch with my faculties. Right. And so as much as I want to be Keats and I want to be able to write the poem that just like names the thing and says the thing, mm-hmm. you know, um, I have to come at it. Uh, in a way that reflects my inability to do so. Well, what do you think of, uh, I didn't read the blurb from Hanif Abdurraqib, but he said, Pilgrim Bell is a book that chooses honesty over beauty, which makes it a breathtaking text. And I I relate it to this this anecdote about the palace a little bit, Um, but also to other things. I wanna slowly move us towards revolutionary poetics because I think also of June Jordan and poetry is a political act because it involves telling the truth. But, but what do you, do you, do you recognize something about the collection in Hanif's words uh, that you've chosen honesty over beauty? There are a lot of moments throughout the collection where I leave the ugly thing in, right? Like there's a poem early on, that talks about the angel Gabriel, whose name has been invoked here. Um, And, you know, it's talking about him. And then there's like this break where I say, um, if he did come back, would I call him Gabriel like I am here or Jibril? You know, in my, in my tradition in Islam, right. We don't call him Gabriel. We call him Jibril. Right. Right. But I'm publishing with a publisher based in Minneapolis. Right. Uh, For a book written in English to an American audience. Right. And so I'm writing this word Gabriel. Right. And, and so I say, who is this even for? Right. I think that there is a way in which um, 
previous iterations of my poet brain would have just corrected, you know, would have just like chosen, you know, maybe I'll go back and change it all to Jibril, you know, and like, and then people can deal with it, right? right? Or, you know, whatever, you know, I get sassy about, you know, or whatever. Um, or I just like change it to Gabriel and hope that people didn't think about, it, you know, but, but the, but the truth is that I'm caught between those things, right? That I, I live between those. There's another poem, um, one of the last poems that I uh, wrote for this collection called Reading Fedexod in the Pandemic. Um, in which I say, uh, people die because we need mail, people die because we need groceries. Um, and then I say, I say we because we dilutes my responsibility, right? Like if I had said people die because I need mail, people die because I need groceries, yeah, that's a little bit more damning, right? But the we, you know, you, you sort of dilute the, you know, and, and again, instead of going back and like changing it and editing it to make myself more accountable, I just name it, right? Like it's in the poem where I say, um, I say we, because we dilutes my responsibility. That's a line in the poem, right? Um, which is not a pretty line. It's not mellifluous. It doesn't sound nice on the ear, or on the tongue, right? But, and so I think that, I think that what Hanif and, you know, Hanif is such a brilliant reader and a brilliant writer, but I think that um, to the extent that I can name the thing to what, to which he's pointing, I think it's that, right. Um, which is instead of like going back and editing it one way or the other, right. And correcting myself, um, more and more, I'm trying to leave those moments in because those moments feel like the actual negotiation that a lot of us spend in late capitalism is we're sort of like marching towards goodness and mm -hmm. never actually reaching there and like trying to, um, move through the world without harming it um, under a system that makes that quite impossible, quite literally impossible, right? Um, I feel like these are the negotiations uh, that are omnipresent. And instead of like portraying myself like I live decidedly on one side or the other of it, you know, it's neither is true, right? Like anyone else, I'm just sort of like, struggling and marching and struggling and fucking up and trying to do better, you know? Well, maybe as a prelude to us doing a deeper dive into revolutionary poetics, which I want to do, um, let's hear the Gabriel, cool, Ga yeah. Gabriel, uh, Gabriel poem, the miracle, yeah. um, which does as, as you've already evoked, it, it does deal with both the unsayable unsayable the unsayable and also with etymology yeah. and naming yeah yeah this is the miracle gabriel seizing the illiterate man alone and fasting in a cave and commanding read the man saying i can't gabriel squeezing him tighter commanding read the man gasping i don't know how Gabriel squeezing him so tight he couldn't breathe, squeezing out the air of protest, the air of doubt, crushing it out of his crushable human body, saying, read in the name of your Lord who created you from a clot, and thus, literacy, revelation. It wasn't until Gabriel squeezed away what was empty in him that the prophet could be filled with miracle. Imagine the emptiness in you, the vast cavities you have spent your life trying to fill with fathers, mothers, lovers, language, drugs, money, art, praise, and imagine them gone. What's left? 
whatever you aren't, which is what makes you a house useful, not because it's floorboards or ceilings or walls, but because the empty space between them. Gabriel isn't coming for you. If he did, would you call him Jibril or Gabriel like you are here? Who is this even for? One crisis at a time, Gabriel isn't coming for you. Cheese on a cracker, a bit of salty fish. Somewhere a man is steering a robotic plane into murder. Robot from the Czech robata, meaning forced labor. Murder labor, forced. He never sees the bodies which are implied by their absence, like feathers on a paper bird. Gabriel isn't coming for you. In the absence of cloud parting, trumpet blaring clarity, what? More living, more money, lazy sex, mother, brother, lover, you travel and bring back silk scarves, a bag of chocolates for you don't know who yet. Someone will want them, deliver them to an empty field. You fall asleep facing the freckle on your wrist. Somewhere, a woman presses a button that locks metal doors with people behind them. The locks are useful to her because there is an emptiness on the other side that holds the people's lives in place. She doesn't know the names of the people. Anonymity is an ancillary feature of the locks. Ancillary from the Latin anquila, meaning servant an emptiness to hold all their living. You created from a clot. Gabriel isn't coming for you. You too full to eat. You too locked to door, too cruel to wonder. Gabriel isn't coming. You too loved to love, too speak to hear, too wet to drink. No, Gabriel, you too pride to weep. You too play to still. You too high to come. No, Gabriel won't be coming for you. Too fear to move. You too pebble to stone. Too saddle to horse. Too crime to pay. Gabriel, no, no. Not anymore, you too gone to save, too bloodless to martyr, too diamond to charcoal, too nation to earth, you brute, cruel pebble, Gabriel, god of man, no cheese on a cracker, mercy, mercy. We've been listening to Kaaba Akbar read from Pilgrim Bell. Um, damn, I have goosebumps from read you reading that poem. Okay, so thinking about the miracle and thinking about what you said earlier, like we spent a lot of time talking about God and prayer and devotion, and you you had a, a worry. What is what is what are you? How are you going to be perceived? But I feel like this poem is like a lot of your poems, maybe most of your poems that we get. On the one hand, this person who's can only learn to read through having everything that they know of themselves squeezed out of them by an angel, by a divine intervention, twinned with the aerial bombardment of drones, which themselves kill unidentified people. Mm-hmm. So we get this twinning of, of um, something about the unknowable and unsayable 
with something to do with the horrible circumstance we are uh, we find ourselves in in some regard. Um, so I guess I wanted to use that as a entryway. I know you've thought deeply about and taught revolutionary poetics. So maybe just orient us to the notion of it and what makes a poetics revolutionary for you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the the title revolutionary poetics is a bit of a misnomer because I a lot of my investigations and thinkings and conversations with my students is around you know, does it exist? Right, right. What is a revolutionary poetics, right? It's not me saying this is revolutionary poetics and let me teach you all. It's let's try to figure out if this is a thing and um, and what does it mean? You know, one thing, one thing that I think about a lot is that a revolution comes in two parts, right? There's the overthrow and the rebuild, right? And without either of those parts, it's not a revolution, right? Um, there has to be something being turned over and then there has to be something being set up in its place. Right. Um, and so I think that rhetoric is, it's very easy to inhabit the carapace of revolutionary rhetoric without advancing something new. Um, and that in and of itself, by definition, isn't revolutionary, right? Um, because there's no rebuild, right? There's no gesture towards a rebuild, right? Um, it's also not enough, you know, I, uh, paired with this, you know, I, I've talked to my students and my friends and the people with whom I've had this conversation and these discussions. Um, I think a lot about the physics definition of work right? Which is the force applied to an object in order to move it, right? Um, if, if there's force applied to an object and nothing moves, that's not work, right? Um, similarly, if an object moves, but you haven't applied force to it, then you haven't done work, right? And so um, if, I, if I say to a room full of people who agree with me, right, fuck Trump, um, and I say that in a room full of, you know, poetry people, probably the majority of them will be like, yeah, fuck Trump, you know? And so I haven't really caused anything to move, right? Like I haven't actually, you know, I've inhabited the, the form of revolutionary rhetoric, right? But I haven't actually moved anything, right? So there's no, by the physics definition of work, probably that's not doing much or any work, right? Similarly, if I'm merely commenting on, um, a movement that I wasn't a part of. Um, if I'm, you know, offering my take or my two cents on a movement that I had no involvement in, that's not by the physics definition, an example of work, right? And so um, if revolutionary writing is writing that does work, um, then it's really interesting to me to consider uh, to consider the ways that people historically have done that, have attempted to do that. You know, you, you mentioned June Jordan, who very much, you know, she wrote her poems and then she would go organize. Right. Yeah. Um, and the poems pointed towards and supplemented and scaffolded the organization. Um, but they didn't replace it. Right. Um, Gwendolyn Brooks has in her, in Annie Allen, there's a sequence of poems called the children of the poor 
the children of the poor. And uh, one of the first, it's like the second or third poem in that sequence is called um, First Fight Then Fiddle, uh, which is, you know, which is four words that is so cleanly um, synopsizes what I'm talking about, right? You, you do the work, right? You do work and then you can, and then you can fiddle about it. Then you can sort of, you know, write your poetry about it or whatever, but you don't confuse one for the other, right? And, and that feels critical to me in my understanding of, in my, you know, nascent and burgeoning understanding of this idea. Okay, so um, this seems like the perfect time to read the question from Solma Sharif for you. Um, so uh, she asks you, what is a poet's... For me, for me. Oh, yeah. This is actually Sol writing to me. Oh, great. Yeah, yeah she's, she, um, she has a question for you. Direct, I love this. Directed to this conversation. Yeah. Um, what is a poet's personal responsibility to the world, and how has Farooq Farakzad's the House is Black, which is a film, expanded your ideas of intervention and art. Oh, my God. So Soul is one of the, you know, to my mind, she's one of those people who's just evolved a little bit further along down the line than the rest of us mortals, right? And so, um, you know, I, I very, very, very much sit at her feet. Um, uh, yeah, she she invokes um, Hanasia S which is the house is black, right? This, this 22 minute, uh, short film by Farouk Saad, um, and which is a, you know, a, a film that she and I have spent a lot of time talking and thinking about, but this really is the perfect time to talk about it because so, you know, for, for those listening who haven't seen it, um, it's, uh, Farouk Saad was, you know, arguably, to, to my mind, uh, and I think Sol would probably agree, um, the most important Iranian poet of the 20th century. Um, in many ways, she paralleled Plath and Sexton sort of as as this sort of like seminal um, female poet who was writing about um, femininity, femininity and, uh, uh, and womanhood in ways that were completely unprecedented in the tradition beforehand. She was like them. She also died young. So there's a kind of like weird cult fascination with her like private life, you know? Um, uh, to my, I mean, to my mind, I think that I, I like her. I mean, her poems mean more to me personally than Platts or Sexton's whose both poems mean quite a lot, quite a lot to me as well. But um, but so she's this major, major poet, uh, and, but she takes, she tries her hand, um, in the sixties at filmmaking, she makes a short film and then, uh, she makes like, she helps edit, um, you know, a couple little pieces and then, uh, and then with her film partner slash possibly romantic interest, this guy, Golestan, who's like this famous producer, um, she heads to this leprosarium to make, uh, to make this documentary about, um, uh, the conditions of the lepers within the, the people afflicted with leprosy within this leprosarium, um, to raise awareness for it. Right. It was, it was super, super impoverished. Um, uh, and so she goes there, she doesn't even film for the first several days that she's there. She just lives among them. Everyone in her life is advising against her doing this, right? Because leprosy is ostensibly a contagious disease. She's a young woman. And so, um, 
but she sits with them, she eats meals with them, you know, she holds their, she kisses their ch- children, you know, um, and then she starts filming, right? And, uh, and she makes this movie, Chanesi Aest, which is, you know, uh, I mean, it catalyzes Iranian new wave cinema, which in turn influences Truffaut and Godard, you know, in a very direct way, um, inflects the trajectory of French new wave cinema, which, you know, as we know, inflects everything else, right? And so like it, it expands um, the aesthetic possibilities of the field of this medium that she's just dabbling in. Right. Um, does everything that I'm getting goosebumps talking about it. Um, <laughs> I love that uh, you keep showing them to me. I well, wish people, no, I just like, wish people could see them. Like you keep putting your arm up to the camera. It's so great. Well, it's a binary, you know, it's like, I'm either getting the, you can't, right. Um, but, uh, but she makes this, she makes this piece of art that expands the aesthetic possibilities of her field. Um, and also, after she makes it, funds roll into the, it's called the Baba Bakhti Leprosarium, right? And funds roll into it, right? Um, doctors move there to lend their services, right? Conditions for the patients therein improve in material quantifiable ways, right? Um, so wildly successful, wildly successful in any in any way that you could uh, define success, whether, um, uh, you know, aesthetic or practically right um if this were in america she would you know do the do the lecture circuit or the festival circuit or whatever go to universities and talk about her experience and da 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 right um but what she did was she went back to the leprosarium and she adopted one of the boys uh one of the young orphans there she adopted and raised him as her own um and i mean it's just talking about it even it's just so humbling to me you know it's so it puts so much in perspective for me the when i talk about first fight then fiddle right it's like you make the documentary that is a resounding success practically aesthetically whatever um that changes the trajectory of global cinema um or inflects it um in whatever way um and then you also go back and adopt the kid, right? And Yeah. It's particularly poignant, too, if you think that when she published her first published poem, which was um, against tradition in the sense that it was a woman writing in first person, but also writing about an adultery without any shame or regret. So from a place of yeah. eros in this adultery, and then she's so demonized that they end up turning her own child against her and she loses uh, custody of her kid uh, for publishing her poetry. So thinking about the ad- adoption, her attraction to the leper colony when she for a while was a pariah who had to live in another continent and then couldn't connect to her own child. It feels like a, um, I, I don't, I don't have the words for it, but, yeah yeah i mean it's just it's so like nothing that i've done approaches that you know what i mean like nothing you know i am i am a tenured professor in the midwest at a big state college right like and i am perfectly capable of upending that and you know and throwing myself into the cogs right of the of the apparatus that threatens the living of me and the people that i love and the planet that i live on right 
Um, but few among us, certainly not me, possess such moral courage, right? And um, and the conviction of her living um, and the way that she was able to make the art and live the life that reflected the values espoused by her art. Um, again, it's just so, and I mean, obviously she's not the lone example of this, but right. uh, it's so it's just so endlessly humbling to me. And it's a reminder to me to, you know, I write the book about addiction and then I do the work in my recovery communities that I don't, you know, talk about in spaces like these, or, you know what I mean? Like I, yeah. there's so much, there's so much that isn't this. Right. Well, let's let's take let's keep in mind the first half of Solmaz's question. Um, what is a poet's re- personal responsibility to the world? But also go back to like aesthetics and and choices within the writing itself. Because um, when you when you gave your one of your revolutionary poetics talks, you do show you did show parts of the House is Black, the the yeah. film that we're talking about, and yeah. you just mentioned one way a poem doesn't do work, which is uh, a fuck Trump poem that yeah. does nothing else. That's not doing work um, or probably not doing work. But you also said in that talk that you could write a poem about how you were called a slur in eighth grade or how your family received death threats after 9-11. But it feels to you like that sort of poem is one that fits into a way that the state and the powers that be can e- can easily metabolize mm-hmm. um, that ultimately is sort of a neoliberal way to feel bad for a moment. Yeah. And one that is legible to the powerful in a way that is not revolutionary. Um, but I'm imagining many poets um, who want to take that. There are many poets who want to take the ways that they've been marginalized or traumatized and bring them into their poetry but in a way that confronts and unsettles the status quo. So if we're thinking about the um, responsibility to the world, but also maybe the impetus to write comes from this place of being marginalized or traumatized. Um, how do we re how, how is, does this return us to the orbital again? I'm wondering mm-hmm. about, um, so that, that type of poem, your, your family received death threats after nine 11. Mm-hmm. Talk to us a little bit about revolutionary poetics in contrast to that. I think the soul Solmaz is one of the great teachers in this way because she resists the her her work really resists the sort of easy narratives of like poor Solmaz, right? Of of For sure. poor Kava people are calling me names, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um and and the and you know the racism that we experience in childhood, the the xenophobia that we experience in childhood has, you know, has long, long, long repercussions and roots. And I'm not, I don't mean to diminish that in any way, of course. Um, but what I am saying is that that's a narrative that empire has already metabolized for itself, right? And it is one way that empire uses to vent a kind of neoliberal guilt right? Which is to say, I sit and experience this, this cud that's already been chewed for me, 
right? That's already, you know, this, this thought has already been chewed. You know, I already know that it's bad to call a little Muslim kid, you know, this name, right? And so if, if I read a narrative about that, you know, I'm just, all I have to do is swallow the cut, right? I don't actually have to, you know, and then, and then for having swallowed it, I get to feel a little bit good about myself for feeling a little bit bad, right? It's this, it's yeah. this like neoliberal inoculation against like actually participating in one's own, in one's own accountability, right? Um, and so the narrative in which I'm poor little Kaveh, uh, who is being maligned by this big, mean country, right, has been very, very true, very literally true at many points. I mean, like, I just came back into the country um, from out of the country, and every single time I've ever come into the country from out of the country, I've always been detained by TSA for some amount of time, right, mm-hmm. every single time in my life without fail. Um, but I'll never put that in a poem, right? Uh, it, it will not ne- because people, like, if I say TSA in a poem, um, uh it's it's this it's this suddenly people's minds like click into like oh he had a hard time with tsa um i know how i'm supposed to feel about that and now i get my sort of like gold liberal star for the day for feeling a little bit bad about the fact that he and i also get to feel good because i wasn't the literal tsa agent who put him through that right. you know what i mean yeah um it wasn't literally the one who did that to him whereas wh- whereas they actually are you know my my point is that um they are and so am i you know, not for nothing. My mind has been colonized by the same, by the same thinking. Right. Um, And so the poems, I think that what I am aspiring towards is something more like I'm fucked and so are you Mm -hmm. Uh, versus, you know, you're fucked and aren't you glad that I'm here to tell you about it. Right. Does that make sense? It does make sense. Well, well, since you 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 mentioned Gwendolyn Brooks and her work, both in poetry and in the world, and and then we talked about uh, Farak Saad in that regard, maybe it would be good to hear against the parts of me that think they know anything, which has a formal nod to Gwendolyn Brooks, which maybe right. you can explain through through a lineage of of Terence Hayes, and then. Uh, reading Farak Saad in, in a pandemic afterwards. Sure. Um, so against the parts of me that think they know anything is in the form of a kind of golden shovel, which is a form invented by Terence Hayes paying homage to Gwendolyn Brooks, in which a line of typically a Gwendolyn Brooks poem runs down the right margin of the poem. Um, uh, and so each line will end with a word. And then when you read those words down the margin, um, it will form a line from a Gwendolyn Brooks poem. In the case of this poem, it takes a line from the Quran, they want to put out the light of God with their mouths, um, and runs it up the right margin and then down the left margin with a couple uh, little variations on the left margin, like they want to, to becomes today, right? So it's still there. It's just, yeah, um, stretch putty, you know, the grammatically it became like, there's no, there's no way to go from with put, right. There's no, there's no, in the English language, you can't ever have a sentence that says with put. Right. And so I had to be a little bit, um, a little bit clever with that, but, 
yeah, so um, this line from the Quran, uh, they want to put out the light of God with their mouths, runs up the right margin of this poem and down the left, which is a little nod to um, Terence and Gwendolyn. Sweet. Yeah, and it's not like, you know, it's not one of these poems. It's like, look at me, I'm a golden shovel. You know, it's not, it doesn't call itself that or anything, but uh, I'm glad that you... I'm glad that you noticed because that's one of those things, one of those like little secret Easter eggs in the book, you know. <laughs> Against the parts of me that think they know anything. They want to put out the light of God with their mouths. Want, like the sovereignty of the dead, extending just short of flesh. Their today is broken. They suggest tomorrow who right now is dancing in the sun with putty over his eyes. Like an ocean coughing up trash, I'm squeezing God out from my pores, intention throbbing like a moon. Which of the jokes I told was best? Difference between man and light? Light won't ask for your tongue. Good joke, the taste of lemon, the official death toll rising while we sleep. It's crude how they figured out God, tacky as jugglers at a funeral. Just let me grieve what I've lost. They were put with me fully built, passionless as shoelaces, pitying even my name. To their credit, they weren't given what I have, majesty and the heft of a face. They want mouths like mine that can blow out tiny fires, the mercy of speech, of sleep, of they. This is called Reading Fedoxad in a Pandemic. The title is a lie. I can't read Farsi. Maharche rake bayad as dast dadem, boshim as dast dadim. I can make out. We lose, we lose. I type it into a translation app. We have lost everything we need to lose. In between what I read and what is written, need, everything. Here, the waving flag. Here, the other world. Because we need mail, people die. Because we need groceries, people die. I write, we need, knowing we dilutes my responsibility, like watercolors dipped in a fast river. Get behind me, English. When I text, maharche rake boyad as dast dadim bashim as dast dadim. To my dad, he writes back, we have lost whatever we had to lose. Hammering pentameter, whatever we had. People die because they look like him. My uncle jailed, his daughter killed. This is a real fact too wretched for letters. And yet my uncle jailed, his daughter killed. Waving world, the other flag. There is room in the language for being without language. So much of what 
is cold. So much of diamond is light. I want both my countries to be right, to fear me. We have lost whatever we had to lose. We've been listening to Kaba Akbar read from Pilgrim Bell. When I think of that line, I want both my countries to fear me, and also a line from the palace that comes from Walter Benjamin, any document of civilization is a document of barbarism. I wanted to ask you about form in relationship to revolutionary poetics, because I'm thinking about Brian, what you said about Brian Eno, about extending beyond the capacity of what the form can hold mm-hmm. um, in seeking that in one's poetics. But also I think of uh, Solma Sharif, who approaches form as sort of emblematic of power itself, as form is the establishment as something um, to work against and undercut. Like, for mm-hmm. instance, she'll, she'll write in syllabics, which is not uh, something that people typically do in English and it works against maybe English's strengths. Um, do you, do you see form that way or even perhaps the languages that you, or language that you are writing within with all of its, uh, histories? Um, do you see yourself working against the container and against forms received? There's always, there's always that friction, right? And, there's always that gulf between um, how I'm able to say something and, you know, the, the platonic ideal of how to say that thing that would result in people taking the action that, um, or me taking the action that uh, the language is calling toward um, or gesturing toward. Uh, And I think that the interesting thing is shooting the, shooting the spark across that synapse right and then you know its movement across the synapse is what causes it to illume right mm-hmm. um you know there are we've we've talked about borges in this conversation he's one of my he's one of my guys i talk about him i end up talking about him a lot but he talks about how um kafka influences influence cervantes right even though kafka lived centuries after cervantes right because um because if you read as I, I literally did, right? I, I read The Metamorphosis in my life before I ever read Don Quixote, right? And so Kafka indelibly uh, influenced my reading of Cervantes, right? Uh, so Kafka influenced Cervantes for me, right? Um, and so I think in Empire, you know, I heard, I heard this thing the other day that, you know, the average person sees, you know, some, however many number of thousands of advertisements a day, right? Like thousands and thousands and thousands of advertisements a day, right? That's inflecting us, right? That's not, that's not inert, right? That's a form, you know? Um, And, uh, and that influences the way that I read the Psalms, right? In a, in a totally unprecedented way, right? No one has ever read the Psalms. And, known about the ads that were on during game six of the NBA finals. Right. You know, and, and, and those ads have changed the way that I read um, song of Solomon or, or, or Bhagavad Gita, or, you know what I mean? Like, like all of these texts that have been around for centuries or millennia. Right. Uh, I have a unique relationship to them. And, 
so when I read them and when my own sort of unprecedented singular voice becomes inflected by them, it's also being inflected by all of that other stuff, right? And so, you know, I don't know that it is so conscious as I sit down and I, you know, I, there's, there's a poem in my, there are a couple of poems actually in my first book in syllabics, right? Um, uh, and I don't know that it is ever so conscious as I sit down and I'm like, you know, what'll really stick it to the man as if I, (laughs) (laughs) as if I write a villanelle, you know what I mean? Like, I, I don't know that it's ever so, um, linear as that, but certainly, right. All of these things are being inflected by this unprecedented array of empires, corrosive tendrils, you know? Yeah. I mean, I didn't, of course, I'm not suggesting it's linear for Solmas either, but But I I wonder about having that sort of orientation and stance going in, like thinking, okay, I'm questioning the very thing that I'm using as I'm using it seems like a really wild, uh, wild place to be. Yeah, yeah. Well, and she's just such an extraordinary writer. You know what I mean? Like, like, I think that people talk a lot about like how potent um, her like the social content of her work is, but just like as a pure, or I don't, you know, I don't know what that means, but just like, like at the level of line, at the level of image, uh, she's just such an extraordinary, strange, singular writer. I mean, the new poems that she has coming out in this book that will be out next year, are just like, yeah, I just, I, I so, so sit at her feet. Yeah. I can't wait for that collection too. Yeah. Yeah. Well, just to circle us back as we come into a close up to the to the beginning, uniting again, sort of revolutionary writing to some of the the questions that we were talking about prayer and devotion and and the names of the great silence. Um, you've said that an essential quality of revolutionary writing is the miraculous, and you've quoted Hannah Arendt, who said, "The new always happens against the overwhelming odds." of statistical laws and their probability, which for all practical everyday purposes amounts to certainty. The new therefore always appears in the guise of a miracle. I didn't know if you had any thoughts on the miraculous, but either way, I was curious if it's too early to know what the horizon looks like for you, the new for you in terms of having brought this to an aesthetic resolution, this collection and releasing it out into the world. Um, what sort of desire or curiosity does it leave you with um, having that departing the nest? Yeah. I'm, I'm, I love that Hannah Arendt moment so much. Uh, I'm also, you said aesthetic resolution, which is a really interesting idea. Um, I'm thinking of the abstract expressionist painter, Philip Gustin said uh, that, he knew a painting was done when any additional brush stroke would be perceived by the viewer to be a diminishment of the instigating intensity. Mm. Right. Um, and that's kind of to the extent that uh, I feel like Pilgrim belt is done. It's like, it's to that extent, right. Where like, if I keep messing with it, it's just going to like, it's going to ruin it. You know what I mean? It's, it's going to make it worse, which isn't to say that it's done. It's just that like, it's as done as I'm capable of getting it. Right. Um, which is, I'm just thinking out loud, but that, that idea of aesthetic resolution made me, um, 
Yeah, resolution is a funny word. Um, I can take it back. No, 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 no. I, I'm, <laughs> I don't I'm, even necessarily mean it. Like it's really, no, I, it, I just, you said it and it made me, I, I'm grateful for it. It yeah. made me think like, do I feel aesthetically resolved about this book? And, right. uh, and yeah, I don't know. Um, yeah. Um, what's new appearing in the guise of the miraculous against all, I mean, like anything that you make, you know, this podcast, like had you not organized it, right would have never existed, right? This conversation that we're having, had you not made it happen, you know, this, the, this would have never existed in all, in all, you know, the, in all time, right? Had you not wrung it out of the ether, right? Yeah. Um, and, and that is miraculous, you know? Uh, I, I don't know. I'm, I, I guess I'm sort of permeable to um, the presence of things being, miraculous or or um yeah i'm 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 making right now you know i'm painting a lot uh i'm uh i'm reading like a novel every day or two uh I'm, i just kind of have an iv drip of them um uh i'm reading a lot about the lives of painters i'm i'm i'm, I'm in this sort of funny visual art moment uh i'm not a particularly talented or adept visual artist my spouse is an incredible painter and can actually you know both paint things that look like the way that they look like and also just be really sort of creative and interesting I'm I just like like I like physically like the feeling you know it's much more like a sort of physiological phenomenon for me than it is um aesthetic but uh yeah I don't know um I Ellen Brian Voigt to take us back to the very beginning of this conversation talks about how a snake needs to recoil in order to strike, right? Um, which I guess in this metaphor, I'm the striking snake, which makes me a little bit uncomfortable. But uh, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah, you know, I'm, for sure. uh, I'm just, uh, I'm not writing poems right now and it feels fine that I'm not. Well, let's let's go out with two more. Okay. Short, two more short poems um, that have been aesthetically resolved. Okay. All right. I'll be the judge of that. <laughs> yeah. How about, um, there's not such a thing as an accident of the spirit. And then we'll go out with, um, an oversight. Yeah. Interesting. Inter you're picking really interesting poems. These are, uh, the majority of these are not the miracle I read, um, sometimes, but uh, a lot of these are not poems that I find myself reading out loud very often so um you can push back too if you want to no 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 no, no. i i actually sure. really like it i really okay, like great. it it's, as long um, as you do it's really interesting to me to see which poems you're sort of um drawn to and how you're sort of like building this set or this playlist it's cool um yeah there's no such thing as an accident of the spirit You can cut the body in half like a candle to double its light, but you need to prepare yourself for certain consequences. All I know about science, neurons, neutrinos, communicable disease, could fit inside a toothpick with wood to spare. Blow it away like an eyelash or lamplight. Show me one beast that loves itself as relentlessly as even the most miserable man. I'll wait. Verily, they sent down language filling us with words like seawater filling a lung. 
You can hear them listening now for our listening. Ask me again about my doubt. Turquoise today and almond hard. It speaks only of what it can't see itself. One chromosome bowing politely to the next or the way our lips still sometimes move when we sleep. An oversight. I murdered my least defensible vices, stacking them like bodies in the surf. An armada of nurses rode in to cherish the dead. Try harder, little moons, they said to the corpses. Winter followed winter. Horses coughed blood into the sand. Some pain stays so long, its absence becomes a different pain. They say it's not faith if you can hold it in your hands, but I suspect the opposite may be true. That real faith passes first through the body, like an arrow. Consider our whole galaxy staked in place by a single star. I fear we haven't said nearly enough about that. Thank you so much for today. Yeah, thank you so much, David. Thank you for spending such good and substantive time with the work. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm grateful for that. Uh, and I'm grateful for the time that we'll get to spend together in the future, hopefully. Yeah, me too. We've been talking today to Kava Akbar about his latest book, Pilgrim Bell from Grey Wolf Press. You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's program was recorded at the Volunteer Powered non-commercial, listener-sponsored, full-strength, makeshift home office of me, David Naiman. More of Kava Akbar's work can be found at kavaakbar.com. For the bonus audio, Kava Akbar adds a reading and discussion of his poem, In Praise of the Laughing Worm, the very same poem that we discussed today, that he loves and which will steal your heart but which didn't quite fit in Pilgrim Bell. This joins bonus audio from Joy Graham, Boris Gander, Deren Nagrifa, Ted Chang, Laylee Long Soldier, Richard Powers, Joe Sacco, N.K. Jemison, and many others. You can find out more about subscribing to the bonus audio and the other potential benefits of becoming a listener supporter at patreon.com slash between the covers. Or... If you prefer a one-time donation, you can do so by PayPal at tinhouse.com slash support. I'd like to thank the Tin House team who help make the show run as smoothly as it does. Elizabeth DeMeo and Elisa Ogie in the book division. Jacob Valla in the art department. Becky Kramer in publicity. And Lance Cleland, the director of the Summer and Winter Tin House Writers Workshops. Finally, I'd like to thank Emre Lodbrog and Barbara Browning for creating the outro. Their album, Emre Lodbrog e Sapatita Mi, can be found on iTunes, and Barbara Browning's trove of ukulele covers can be found at soundcloud.com slash Barbara Browning. <laughs> <laughs>